So, some of you may, well, I'm losing everything. Some of you may have been t uh, paying attention to this. Some of you may not have. But um, please don't respond to what I'm about to say. No, nothing. Just don't respond to what I'm about to say. Um, <clears throat> so I've been, um, so, so last week, it was, it was uncovered that our minority leader in the House, minority being the Republicans, um, had, uh, had, had an, a DUI with a um, speeding, all, all kinds of stuff. Tried to cover it up. Um, tried to use his position as a representative to, to um, uh, get favor, all these other things. And so that came out last week. A video came out, all this other stuff. So... Um, uh, this wasn't uh, a new position I was taking, but now I felt like we had to do something about it. But that, uh, so we started working on um, asking me and a couple other representatives, one particular, uh, we began to ask the minority leader to step down, that he needed to do that uh, for the integrity of the office for, um, for a bunch of reasons. I mean, he was 20 miles over the speed limit and, and, and twice the legal limit um, and, and was arrested. He pulled up beside the, the highway patrolman and just looked at him and took off. I, I don't know. So, but drunk people don't make good decisions. So, so he didn't need to be our minority leader, obviously. And um, it's, been a, it's been a rough five days, five, six days. Uh, we've been fighting this, fighting this. And, um, and then the minority leader and a handful of Republicans just really started coming after uh, Representative DeGraff and I, uh, really hard coming after us in all kinds of things, in the media and all kinds of stuff. And, um, and then we had our plan, what we were doing today and then tomorrow, and um, he knew the writing was on the wall. We had done our homework. We had done what we needed to do. And he knew he was going to be voted out of that position. So this morning he resigned. And he's, not, he's no longer the minority leader. And um, this, is, this is good. This is a very good thing uh, for a, a lot of, on a lot of different levels. Um, but then the tricky thing is who's going to be the minority leader. And uh, there's, there's just not really good choices. Um, our, our caucus is so much, so messed up. And so everybody's playing politics and all that kind of stuff. And, and so here's the simple answer to the question I get immediately. No, I am not going to be the minority leader. I will not let my name stand for that. It's not, it's not, um, it's not who I am. It's not how I'm wired. My, my best asset to the, to the House of Representatives will be taken away if I become minority leader. And so I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But um, I don't know. Tomorrow's election is going to be really crazy, but this is, this is like the first real thing that I feel like that we've been able to break through, push through, and get to the other side, and, and win one for the good guys, you know. Um, yes, I've been interviewed by every person, because I'm the one who was making the motion, I'm the one who brought it to the vote, um, called the caucus call, all this kind of stuff, um, so it was, so, so yes, I've been interviewed by every single person person in Colorado. Um, but I, I know we've done the right thing. So 
Um, and, and some people ask, well, if you do this, then what about the next, what about the leadership? Are you worried about the next leadership? I don't think you let those things make decisions. That's how politics work. I don't like politics. I don't do politics. What I do is what is right. And this was right. And then the next step, we have to figure out what's right there. Okay. And so, um, so, uh, <clears throat> yeah. Any, any questions, anything about that? Yes, sir. Is he still going to be a representative even though he's resigned from? Um yeah. Yeah, so, so I got asked this question by a few different media groups. Are you going to try to ask him to resign and see? Because we were asking him to resign. In fact, last Friday we started asking him quietly. We, we tried to keep this out of the media. We tried to just resign. Yes, it'll be an issue, but the whole state has seen the video and all this stuff. And so I said, just resign. It'll, it'll, no, I'm not going to. And so another representative asked him to resign. And, and um, <clears throat> so then the media is saying, are you asking him to resign from his seat or from the minority leadership? Well, I'm part of the Republican caucus. We elected him into that leadership position. We didn't elect him into his seat. His constituents elected him into his seat. His district elected him to that. So that's not my business. Um, the, what, what we elected him into is my business. And, uh, and, and he was removed. Well, he, he resigned from that today. Um, his seat, that's his voters. If they want to do something about that, a recall or whatever, they can do that. But that's not my business at all. It has nothing to do with me. So the simple answer is yes, he, he can stay in that seat until, until somebody says you can't. Usually you do that through elections, right? It's not necessarily through a recall or something. You just, when the next election comes up, you say, we're done with you. Okay. Except that isn't a DUI a felony in Colorado? <coughs> Um, so the arrest that he had and how that works does not disqualify him from the office. I think it should. He's still on probation right now. Um, I think it should, but that, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not the one that makes that decision. So, yeah, I think a lot of things, somebody, somebody asked, do you want him to leave his seat? Well, I'd, I'd like to take about 20 Democrats out of their seat before we, Start picking on our side, you know. <clears throat> In fact, 20 would be a nice round number. So, yeah, and there's also, you know, I'm one representative of, of, um, of a 65 House and 35 Senate. So there's only so much of a voice I have on those kind of things. Although this, it appeared that my voice was um, loud enough, right? So... Um, all right, any more questions before we jump into this? All right, what am I speaking about on the weekends? All in. <clears throat> all in. All in with Jesus is one of them, actually, that touches all the subjects, but all in. What are the, what are the subjects that I've already uh, addressed? Okay. Um, keep your eyes on Jesus. So all in with Jesus, that's one of the subjects. That was the first one. It, it helps if you start with Jesus. Yeah. It makes a good round holistic theology if you start with Jesus. Um, and then there was, there's been two more weeks. What was the week after that? All in with the Word, the Word of God. What does that mean to be all in the Word of God? And so we did that um, 
two Wednesday nights ago and then last Wednesday night, we were looking at Psalms 119 and looking at um, the Word of God and the significance and importance of the Word of God. And, uh, you know, we could do an entire year series on just the Bible, right? I mean, the Bible talks a lot about itself, um, a lot of things about the Bible. And I, and I, I wanted to mention this because I, I got some questions after, the two weeks ago I got some questions about this. But, you know, I think here's one of the things for me when it comes to the Word of God. I think this is one of the things you have to decide. Um, you know that the Word of God is God. It's God's Word to us, and it's God to us. It's not just His Word to us, but it's God to us. And then you, you, you have to decide that. And then you decide by faith, I'm going to embrace and believe what the Word says. Okay? Um, there's a lot of things that will come along that try to disprove the Word of God. Right? Um, I study those, and I'll look at them to be able to answer. This is the biggest reason. To be able to answer the questions, and, and every now and then I'll throw some things out in messages and stuff that, uh, that kind of give you a, a good foundation of this is, this is a, this is what is being said out there, but this is the biblical truth, okay? But here's what I think is uh, spend your time studying the Word of God from the point of faith, believing that God wants to speak to you out of the Word, rather than trying to prove or disprove uh, something in the Word of God, okay? First, starting with trying to prove or disprove the Word of God or the validity of it or that kind of stuff. Um, there is nothing anybody is ever going to write that is going to disprove that for me, right? I, I had a guy that uh, visited the church, a nice guy, and I went to get coffee, and he wanted to ask me some things about the church. And he said, he asked me a question, so I want to ask you a philosophical question. What if I could disprove um, the deity of Jesus to you? And he, he, he had a path he was going to go down with that and ask some more questions and things. And he was just trying to pick my brain a little bit. It wasn't, wasn't confrontational. wasn't negative. He just was he's just that kind of person, thinker. And, I, and he said, what, what, would be, what would be the first thing you would do or what would what would be your reaction to that if I could disprove Jesus to you? And I, and I said, do you mean like um, historically prove he wasn't there? He goes, no, that can't be proved. I said, right. And I said, do you mean just the deity of Jesus, that, is, that he was God? And he said, yeah, his, his, his uh, deity. And I said, you, you can't. So it's not, it's not going to happen. He said, but I'm saying, like, if I could prove it, like, through other writings and add that to the Bible or, or the Bible. I said, you don't understand. You can't. Because I've already established that in my spirit. And it's, it's my existence in faith. And there's nothing you can do to disprove that. I've been doing this a long time. I've been through a lot of stuff over the years. Some, some big stuff, some devastating things. Things that, that a lot of people in society look at and say, well, that... How can you serve Jesus if that happened or this is what? And I, I've been through all the stuff, and I've come out on the other side knowing that Jesus is my everything, that he's my Lord and Savior, and that the Word of God is him, and there's nothing you can do to shake that in me, either one of those, either Jesus or the Word. You can't shake those in my existence. Even, even if we uncovered some ancient book that said, ha, the Bible's not true, and here's all the reasons, right? Written by Paul, okay? It, it doesn't matter. I know who Jesus is. I know what the Word of God says, and I'm, and I'm 
securely founded on that. And so when I'm looking, when I'm going into the Word of God, I'm not looking to figure out whether it's true or not. I've already, I've already established that. I'm past that. Um, I, I'm not going into the Word of God to see if God wants to speak to me through that. I've already, I've already established that. What I'm doing is saying, God, what do you want to say to me today through this? How, how are you wanting me to see you bigger? How do you want me to open my eyes and my spirit to see and to understand? It's not a matter of whether, whether um, you know, I've already established 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that the Word of God is inspired by, the Word is inspired by God, that all Scripture is inspired by God, and it's profitable, and all those things for teaching, conviction, uh, reproof, all those things. And that's where I go. That, that's already established for me, so that's where I go when it comes to the Word of God. And so, uh, you know, I get these questions. I actually get these questions a lot in the, in the capital from people that are, they think I'm, I'm weird and silly because I believe the Word of God. They think there's something wrong with me because I, this, they, I actually believe the Word of God. Now, here's part of the problem. You've got a lot of people that have been in that capital for a long time that call themselves Christians and have no idea who Jesus is. And so that's part of the fight that I'm fighting is people will go down to the well and quote the Bible, and then they're living and doing so many different things that disprove all the things that they're saying, right? So when somebody like me comes along, they say, you actually believe the Bible? I think I mentioned this, but I had a, had a guy do an article. I don't even remember wh- wh- which publication. But so when, so, and some of you in this room are guilty of this. When somebody does an article about me, I get like 20 people send it to me. When that happens, I'm like, I should read it. I might be in this thing. Why else would they be sending it to me, right? And, um, and, and the guy was basically saying this pastor truly, honestly, believes that evolution did not happen. And the whole article is like stupefied because I believe in creation because I believe in the Bible and God said he created it. And how bizarre is it for somebody to actually believe that and not believe in evolution? His whole article was trying to to make me look bad because I haven't bought into evolution. And and the thing is, is he used clips. This was a video thing and with an article and stuff. And he was using clips and quotes from my messages. And he, he did a good job. He summed up what I believe very well. <laughs> but he thought he was, he thought he was, I was an idiot. He thought I was a complete buffoon because I believe God created people. And that's why People believe that killing other people, i.e. babies, is okay because we evolved. Now, I can't kill you. You can't kill me because we've grown into higher enlightenment and understanding. And so we've developed, we've evolved morally, which is not possible, not even remotely possible. But I'm some kind of weirdo. Well, here's the thing. I truly believe the Word of God. I am all in with the Word of God. What it says. Now, we're going to have different variant variant, um, views and understandings, and that is healthy. That's good. Um, I say this when I'm doing the journey at my house, is uh, my goal is not to turn everybody into robots and make you believe what I believe, but I believe what I believe strongly, and I I will tell you that, and I will explain that. 
Um, God wants you to work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. In other words, humility before God, saying, God, I don't get to decide what I want to believe. I have to decide what, what you're telling me. I have to make that um, become what I believe, right? And so I, I want us to look at, I want, us to, I want to go through Philippians some for the next couple of weeks and uh, look at some stuff with Philippians. God, God, gave me, God gave me something very strong in Philippians, and I, I wrote it down. It pops up on my phone every day as a reminder, um, one of these scriptures, and I'll, and I'll show you that when we when we get there, um, I, I've known these. I've known this scripture for ages, but for some reason, it just jumped out at me different. Well, I, I'll explain the why. It's not for some reason. Very intentionally jumped out at me. So, let's start. Um, let's start in chapter one, verse one. That's weird. Um, but let, let me ask some questions first. So, um, so who who wrote this? Paul, uh, who was he writing to? Church at, Church at Philippi, right? I'm hearing lots of options out there. Who, what, what's? Church at Philippi, but also us. Us, Church at Briargate. Yes, correct. Now, so, so here is... Um, so when, when in Paul's life did he write this? Because that, that actually affects some of the things he says. It affects it a lot, actually. When did he write this in his life? Somebody said something. Prison. He was in prison. Okay? Um, when in his prison time frame did he write this? What? When? Early in prison, late in prison? Late in prison. Very late in prison. In fact, he had, he had, um, he had been free before, kind of like house arrest. And, um, and by this time, there's a bunch of things that had happened. There's some really weird historical things that happened. But the, there had been a changeover in leadership um, from the Roman the Roman government, and then in uh, the the new Roman leader that was taking over, um, had married a Jewish woman. But the best that we can tell from history is she was possessed, uh, very evil, very dark, a woman. And she she began to make some rule changes and things like that, and um, and uh, and and then he was. He was taken from house arrest, and he was actually put in chains in the um, in the in the praetorium. And so, so you can see his language starts changing, right? He he um, like when he's writing Romans, and even when when um, uh, he there there seems to be a uh, still a pep in his step, kind of with a un, with an idea that he potentially will get out, uh, something will happen, you know, that kind of thing. And by the time he writes. Philippians, you can see he's, he's seeing he's at the end of this thing. And he realizes he's not getting out. And, um, and he starts, his language starts changing. And, 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 and I think he becomes much more, some people dip, differ on this a little bit, but I think he becomes much more even connected and emotional. Like when he talks about Timothy and things like that, I think he's, he's, um, 
he's he's uh, he, he's just realizing that he's he's at the end of his life, right, and that he's going to die in there. And so, <clears throat> so with that, okay, um, <clears throat> this letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. It, who who is not there anymore? That used to be right there with him at all times. Oh, Bar- Barnabas. Barnabas had left a long time before this. Him and Barnabas had split up, actually, um, over, over what? Over Mark. Um, these are all, yes, none of these people are with him, but <laughs> the one I'm looking for <laughs> is uh, Luke. <laughs> um, you know, the, the book of Acts, Paul was, was uh, and Luke were right there together, most of that stuff. Luke was... Luke was um, seeing this, doing all this kind of stuff. We see him later in his life, and now Luke is not around him. He's not getting... So Paul is one of the people that Luke got all the information from, right? And, um, and we see where he's not there uh, because um, Paul would have mentioned him. But <clears throat> so he says, I'm writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the church leaders and deacons. Now, what he's saying is he's including them in the letter. He's not including them in the people that belong to Jesus, okay? Kind of assume they are part of that crowd. But, um, but he says, including the church leaders and deacons. Now, that's actually an interesting statement from um, from church historian point of view. It, it, it matters a little bit, not a lot, but it matters a little bit in what he's writing. But when he says, including church leaders and deacons, it's actually kind of an important statement because when he was first writing... When he was first writing his his um, his letters and uh, epistles, there wasn't church leaders and deacons, right? Um, when when was when was some of the church leaders and deacons established? When Paul wrote, "This is how you, this is what a church leader and a deacon is," and they all all the the this was writing to Timothy and some of that. And so then they all go, oh, okay. And so they go, this is church leaders and deacons. And then we see over about 20, um, 30-year time frame, we see all of a sudden church leaders and deacons. And we see not only they're writing, this is what you do, but then um, this, this needs to be handled this way and that kind of thing. And so um, Paul is now uh, writing this, and he's writing, and he's including church leaders and deacons in the process. Now, interesting about Philipp- uh, Philippians, too. I think this is kind of important also. Is Philippians, he's not dealing with a major, major sin issue like he is in, in pretty much every other book he writes, right? Um, first, second Corinthians, man, he's dealing with a lot of stuff there, crazy stuff, all kinds of stuff, right? Um, and he's not here. In fact, here's something that's interesting you may want to process sometime. You actually, there are some books that will explain this because it's not as easy. I'm going to make it sound easy. It's not as easy as it sounds to see this. But there was almost a guarantee that there was a book written to the church in Corinth between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Really, 1st and 2nd should be 1st and 3rd, and it was at least for sure one in between there. Now, how would we know that? When, when, Paul, when Paul writes 2nd Corinthians, he responds to some things out of 1st Corinthians and some things that he is responding to that's not in 1st Corinthians. But he's responding to it. So that lets us know that there was another one that he wrote, and then they did something or didn't do something, and then he responds to that in 2 Corinthians. 
He'll say something like, as I wrote to you earlier or whatever, but then we don't have a record of that, right? Does that make sense? So, so when it comes to uh, Philippians, he's not writing about a major, major issue. The, the, really, the biggest thing that he's talking about in, in Philippians is, you know, you guys get along. Just get along. There's no reason for dissension. There's no reason for division. Now, he deals also a little bit with... Um, Feels a little bit with um, um, <clears throat> Judaism coming in, kind of pushing back against that. That kind of always seems, specifically in those first couple hundred years, really seems to always be trying to infiltrate back in. Remember, Paul writes to Peter later and says, Peter, come on. Uh, you, you're, you're making them get circumcised again? You're the guy who saw the sheet, and now you're doing this? So, um, so he, he kind of... Um, confronts Peter over that. And, he, and he's doing a little bit of that in Philippians, but really Philippians is it's just the end of his life, and he's writing this, and he's, and he's um, lifting everybody up, and he's telling them, look, just, just get along, just work together, and God can do some pretty amazing things. And trying to encourage them too, right? So, <clears throat> and it does start off with this letter from Paul and Timothy, but I don't think Timothy wrote anything because um, I think he was just saying like, Timothy's here with me because he doesn't really use we. Uh, he's always using I feel this way. I've been praying for you. I've been, and so I think it's like, hey, me and Timothy are writing this book. Timothy, I included you. I know you're not doing anything. You know that kind of <clears throat> statement, right? Yes, sir. That doesn't sound like it, no. <laughs> Why are you standing in front of me? <laughs> now I'll say it right into the mic. Okay. Paul had bad, bad eyesight. Yes. Timothy was with him. Did Timothy act as the scribe? Um, there's a, there's a, I feel like very strongly that he did. If, if Timothy didn't, somebody did. Somebody wrote it for him. Um, Paul did the uh, describing. We see where he does this a few times because he'll say, um, I'm going to write this last part in my own handwriting, okay, this last sentence or two in my own handwriting. Where you see where he does that, that means somebody else has been writing the book. He's dictating it and they're writing it. They're not, they're not collaborating. That's not the same thing. They're just writing it down. <clears throat> Yes, he, he, he actually deals with that as much in Philippians as any other book, is they were um, preaching things and saying Paul told them to, or Paul, or Paul preached this, or whatever the case. So, so guys, don't be irritated when Stephen comes and puts the microphone in your face. It's the only way that people at home can hear you. And there are, you'd be surprised at how many people are, are listening on a regular basis. So, may God, because I, I know that because then I get 20 emails tonight. Um, we couldn't hear the questions. Yeah. Scott, I wonder, uh, with Paul's background, is, I, I really think he was probably a rabbi before uh, the Damascus experience because he studied under Gamaliel. <coughs> he was involved in the Jewish church and probably recognized a lot of problems that were coming into the new church. Uh, I think that might have influenced some of his writing. Oh, it had to have. Um, so, so his teacher was probably the second 
most well-known teacher, um, a rabbinic teacher. So Paul had one of the best, um, the best Jewish educations and rabbi educations of almost anybody at his time. And that's why he was kind of moving up so quickly. Uh, yeah, he was, he, was a, he was a spiritual leader, a rabbi, and he was given the authority to, to clean and purify the, the uh, Ju, uh, Judaic church and get all these goofy new movement of Christians out. That's why he was chosen, because of his training, because of his background and stuff. Also, he was a zealot. He puts it that way, <coughs> not exactly. I mean, he wasn't an illegal zealot, but he was zealous for what he believed the word of the God, word of God and the commandments were to be, which excluded all of those of us of the way. Yeah. And and that was that was he was seriously <coughs> motivated. He just what he wasn't just well educated. Right. The the concept of all in, he was all in. He was he was completely all in. Which which so this is just a thing that is is I try to keep this in my mind and my spirit right now is no matter what I think about somebody, no matter what they believe, no matter how, to use the same term, no matter how zealous they are in their anti-God belief systems, if God could change and save Paul, he can do the same thing with anyone else. And even though it is very difficult for me in, in, in going to the Capitol and dealing with this stuff right now, it's difficult for me to keep it in my mind the separation between how evil some of these people are, and and to say this while this is being recorded, this is important. Um, how demonic some of these people are. When when you fight, when you fight to for the right to murder babies in the womb, and then you celebrate it, and then you you talk about how you can't wait till your four year old daughter grows up and aborts her baby. This is what I had to listen to last Friday. Guys, that's demonic. That's not just an ideology. That's demonic. Um, it's hard for me to separate that sometimes and say, but Paul was killing Christians and, and Jesus saved him. He saved him. Be careful when you, and I'm, I'm saying you by saying me, really. Be careful when me uh, just writes somebody off and says, they're done. They're, you know, they're going to hell. Be careful because, guys, we're not Jesus. And Jesus died for everybody. He created everybody. He died for everybody. And so it's important for us to make sure that we keep that in our mind on the forefront. I, I still have to fight against these things, and I have to fight against these people and the things that they're saying. But at the end of the day, what I'm fighting against is I'm fighting against the evil and the darkness that has consumed them. But there's still a soul down in there that God created. Right? Okay. Verse 2, may, our, may God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. This is a great opening to a letter. Every now and then I get cards to, you know, to me as pastor. And uh, they, they start with things like this. I'm like, man, that's like I'm Paul. Actually, it's to be like I'm the person receiving. So I'm the Corinthians or the Ephesians. Or the, that's not as exciting. So, <clears throat> all right, so verse 3. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. 
Guys, I, I had the opportunity to have this moment again today up at the Capitol. This, this is happening all the time now. Um, Cynthia has been putting prayer groups together to come to the Capitol uh, every day. Uh, pretty much, well, I think every day there's been people there praying. And there was a group that came up today. And um, w- one of the people in the group is considering running for a position of office. So that's part of the reason that she came up there was to, I gave her the tour and did, you know, talk to her about this, her and her husband. And, but uh, I've been doing this with every group that I know and I can connect with, and I'm there at the right time, there at the right time, that kind of thing, because I can't always control all that stuff. But I, I always I want them to come to my office, and I want them to pray in my office. They're praying all over the Capitol. They'll pray you know, down in the rotunda. They'll pray on the first floor. They'll play, pray up in the gallery sitting above the house, go over to the gallery above the Senate, and they do all this. But if I can, and I can work this, with my schedule, I want to go meet them in my office, and I want them to pray for me, and I want them to pray in my office. Um, and, and that was happening today. A group of people were up there praying, and, I'm, and I'd been praying with them. I'm sitting, I'm just listening to them praying. And, I, and I'm thinking, God, thank you for people. Thank you. That one, one of the TV stations that interviewed me in the last few days, I don't remember which one, but they asked me, one of these, one of these questions, something like, um, "What is the thing that has surprised you in a positive way the most?" And I told him, I said, "It's it's people. There there are people all over the state of Colorado that love God, and want God's justice, and fear God, and want everybody else to fear God, and to understand that He is God over everything." And I get this everywhere. And every time we have some kind of stupid debacle like we've had these last two or three days, um, I get emails from all over the state, not my district in the east side of Colorado Springs, all over the state, people saying, they, they usually call me pastor before they call me representative, which I appreciate. Representative is a, is a title, whatever. It doesn't, doesn't do a lot for me. But pastor, man, that one gets me, right? from somebody I don't know. You know so I, I'm in Grand Junction, and I, I saw this uh, news report about you. Thank you for being a man of God. I pray for you every day. People I don't know, never seen them, I'm praying for you every day. And, um, and, and, then, and then letters written to other representatives saying, this is not good, by the way, okay? Why can't you be more like Scott? Don't say that in a letter. But I read those and because they copy me, and I'm like, you're not helping me make friends. But, but what they're trying to say in a, in a crude way is what I'm representing. Not really me. They're not saying, trying to say be like him. They're saying he, he's taking a stand on certain things. Do that. Don't waver. Do that. Um, the, the reason it is so easy for me to take a stand is because I, I am trying to serve God. I'm not trying to be uh, um, in that office. I'm not trying to get reelected. I'm not trying to do anything except I just want to serve God. This position means nothing to me except that God told me to do it. My life is easier and better without this. It's, it's, I get to do what I want when I'm not doing that. And, and yeah, that's selfish, but but the only reason I'm doing it is for God. And so to me, it's easy to take a stand. 
Somebody said, if you take a stand, everybody's going to hate you and vote you out. <laughs> if I wasn't motivated, now I am. So, <laughs> you guys, it's the same with you. You, you. you know what this is. There are certain situations and moments and times in your life when you say, you know what? This is the hill I'm dying on. This is the fight I am fighting. If you've ever raised children, there will be times when you have to do that to protect your child, to go to the school, to do something, because this is, this is the moment where I will not give in. And sometimes it's, a, it's with your child and disciplinary things or whatever, I have to take this stand here, right? There's those different, we do, all of us do this, okay, that, that, that this is when I'm going to do this. And so when I get people to come up and pray and do this thing, it moves my spirit more than I can say. And I say the same thing, Lord, thank you. I give thanks to, to every one of these people. And, and oftentimes, I don't know who they are. Um, this group that comes from Fort Collins or this group that comes from Berthet, or I mean, you'd be surprised at the people that will drive all day long to come and, and spend time and pray in that capital. It, it convicts me. I, I never did that. Never even processed that. Because you'd be amazed at how many good Christians that really want to see God be in charge are all over this state. The, the longer I'm doing this, the more I know this state is a red state. It is not a blue state. It's just been hijacked. And I think illegally too, but it's been hijacked. Guys, there, are, there are Christians all over this state that are, that are disgusted by what is happening to our children, what is happening in the schools, what is happening... With, with just who we are as a people trying to move forward. They're, they're disgusted by this, Al. Well, there is a uh, video that I saw a couple of years ago, maybe three or four years ago, about the stealing of the, uh, uh, the, the politics in Colorado. <coughs> and it was done by a, a sweet lady who is, uh, um, I don't remember where she came from. She's a transplant, came here with her husband. She's Asian, you're Asian, actually. And uh, she's a wonderful voice for uh, conservatism. I just can't think of her name. She was able to prove that the Democrats, uh, that the politics in, in Colorado were stolen by three very, very wealthy people, one of whom was Gerald Polis. I don't remember the names of the woman or the other man that did it, but they were um, multi, multi-millionaires. I've met, I've met with her, Carolyn. What's her name? Michelle yeah, Michelle Malka. Yes. Yeah, you may not be able to find yeah. that video anymore, but I did see it. Yeah, it's it's out there. Yeah, there's a couple books that are very similar that are, were written too. Yeah. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to God. Whenever I pray, I make my request for all of you with joy, for you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. I I I, I feel the same way about our pastor in India. And, and it's just amazing how that's taking off now. It's just truly just taking off. And, um, and what God is doing, it's just exciting to see it. Uh, and I tell him the same thing. I get to partner with you in this, and our church gets to partner. We prayed for him Sunday as, as, um, as our missionary spotlight. I get excited about these things, that there are people in India that, have, that really have never heard about Jesus and now they're saved and serving him, and God's healing them and setting them free. And, and every time they turn around, something else happens in a supernatural way. It doesn't get any better than that. And we get to be a part of that. 
um, specifically with our church in India, but we get to be a part of that with missions all across. Every one of those missionaries we support out there, they have these kind of things that are happening, these stories, and we get to put finances and our prayers and our hearts and attitudes toward this. Yes, sir. Well, there is a, uh, uh, a God consciousness in most of the other nations of the world that are uh, pantheistic. They have many, many gods. So it's, I want to say it's easy for them to believe in a God, but not necessarily ours. Uh, it's not really easy to believe in, but they are used to knowing that there is a God, and they choose to serve ours, which means that they they uh, uh, they leave all the others. They they no longer believe in them, or at least they don't serve them. In this country, we don't have multi, uh, we don't have a pantheistic uh, culture here. Uh, we have basically a monotheistic culture or a non-theistic culture. Uh, not polytheist. So it's harder in some respects here to receive Jesus Christ as the God, whereas in other nations, especially polytheistic ones, they can see suddenly that God is the God of the gods and everything else is subservient to him. Yeah, so. yeah I, th I, think, um, I think I would, Im I would agree with part of that. The, the idea of pantheistic, I think that exists in America too. Um, it doesn't look like it may in India. But one of the things that they're doing, you've got to be careful of, they're not just adding Jesus to the list. Uh, um, to add Jesus to the list in India would not mean getting saved. That may be embracing some of the things that come along with it, but for them to actually give their heart to Jesus and get saved, they, they have to renounce the other gods. It has to be a complete... Um, separation because Jesus doesn't share the stage, and there's no, there's no, um, there's no place. If the if the message is being taught properly, there's no place uh, for Jesus to share that with anybody. When when I was there, that's the main thing I kept preaching: is Jesus is the God over everything, and He is the only God that. And you list all the things you know that that does this kind of stuff. It's um, they they are very much more of a spiritual people though than we are. Very much. That's really the rest of the world. Almost all the world, except Western society, are very spiritual. Very, very um, spiritual, very in tune with spiritual things. Uh, we, the Western society is, has sanitized uh, spirituality out. Everything is clinical, everything is reasoning, everything is science. But um, these, most of these people are, are very hungry. And, uh, and every single people group ever in history has a religious mentality with a deity attached. That's important because what that means is when Scripture says that God has put that measure of faith within all of us, He's put this hunger to know Him within all of us, that we're searching, we just don't know for sure what we're searching for. And that's why it's important for us to actually talk about Jesus. And, and by the way, it's just as important to talk about Jesus in America as it is in other countries because the, the generations that are coming up have no knowledge of Jesus in America, have zero knowledge of Jesus. Uh, it's, it's not like when I grew up, everybody knew who he was, whether you served him or not, everybody knew who he was. And most likely, either my generation or the generation above, most everybody had been to church sometime in their life, right? That's not the case now. It, there's way more people nowadays that have never been to church, have no understanding of Jesus Christ, have no understanding of the Word of God. And that's why they can buy into some of this stuff so much. That's why, in fact, that's why they can buy into the fact that when I, 
you know, I, that, that crazy pastor actually believes in um, there's no such thing as evolution. They're like, what? Because the altars that they have been bowing their knee to is humanism and evolution and, and um, narcissistic, a very narcissistic approach to humanism. Uh, that's why that people like me are considered weirdos in their eyes. When you actually pray and expect Jesus to do something, you're strange to them. But that's also and more consistent with what Peter was saying when he says that we're a peculiar people. And until American society, uh, most, most places around the world, Christianity is a very peculiar religion. It's a very strange religion. Right? <clears throat> he says, I've been partners with you spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Now, that's a pretty important um, little sentence right there for a few reasons. Um, one is God's the one who starts the work. You don't, you don't decide to serve the Lord someday. You don't just wake up and think, I'm going to be a Christian today. That is not possible. The Holy Spirit has to pull you in, has to, has to um, convict you, invite you. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit is the one who starts this process. Human beings don't start it. Okay. Now, the other side of that is that um, he's going to continue this work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. That's, a, that's an important theological statement. Okay. Uh, There's some people that believe um, in, in um, a completed sanctification mentality. Right? I am sanctified. There, there is actually a, a, a church, church of God group that is Pentecostal, very solid, but they believe in um, what's called the second definite work of grace, and they believe that um, that when you when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, that you have the Holy Spirit. Um, that's the second definite work of grace, not salvation. That's the first work of grace, being filled with the Holy Spirit, like an Acts two experience. The Holy Spirit sanctifies you, past tense, you are now finished, finalized, and you're not going to sin anymore. Okay? Yeah, it doesn't take like half a second to go, what? You look in the mirror and you go, hmm, I don't think it worked on me. <laughs> right? Now, it's not because you have a list of intentions on the, you know, hanging on the mirror. You shouldn't. But, uh, but to, to say we're still broken people and we still have propensity towards sin. That's why we need to constantly be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is constantly re, uh, regenerating us and, and, um, and cleaning us and convicting us and all these different things. But there is that mentality out there. Um, and, and, and I believe that this is also the same concept that is based, that uh, once saved, always saved is based. It uh, tears down once saved, always saved. Because once saved, always saved basically says that once you've gotten saved, that you're good, you're finished then. And that uh, you're going to go to heaven no matter what. That you're already forgiven of stuff you haven't done. That's the mentality. Uh, and then some of the arguments, some, it's not everybody's argument. It, gets, it breaks down pretty quickly. But one of the arguments is, is if you sin after you're um, a Christian, then that means you probably weren't a Christian in the first place. Which is not fair to anybody. You can, be, you can very much be wanting to serve Jesus and be a Christian, but then you still goof up. And sometimes we let our flesh be in charge. If you go to Romans 6 and 7 and 8, it, it totally destroys that mentality, right? 
So this sentence says that he will continue his work until when? Because we believe in something called progressive sanctification. And by the way, sanctification doesn't mean growing in holiness. It means being set apart. The way you grow in holiness is then you respond by setting yourself apart. It's a marriage concept, a marriage terminology. And um, that's, why, that's why in Jeremiah 1, verse 5, when God says to Jeremiah, before you were born, while you were still in the womb, I sanctified you. If that means growing in holiness, then you tell me how the baby in that womb was growing in holiness. Because it's not what sanctified means. That's always the way we use it, but it's not what it means. Sanctified means I've been set apart. Because he says you have been sanctified and set apart to be a voice of prophecy to the nations. Holiness is a choice that you are drawing closer to the Lord and being obedient to his word. Sanctified is the, is the decision that you're making. So, so I'll use the uh, marriage analogy. Okay, Jesus proposes to us. Because we're going to marry him someday. He proposes to us. We respond by saying, I accept. That's what we call salvation. Jesus says, I died on the cross and I've given you everything. Would you like to, in other words, I have set myself apart for you, the groom, for the bride. And then he says to the bride, which is us, um, I have set you apart to me. Are you going to respond to that? That's what sanctification actually means. If you're Christian. Yeah. So then the way we respond to this is we say, yes, by faith, I accept your offer. I mean, th- I'm adding some language, but Scripture talks about we're going to marry Jesus and all the, 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 um, the story of the ten virgins. All this stuff is part of this, this concept, this thought process. The, the whole thing is about this. Okay. So, so then we respond by saying, yes, I want to serve you, Jesus. Now we're engaged. We're not married to Jesus yet. We're in the engagement time frame as salvation. The, the concept of sanctification is the only thing that sanctification means is something has been set apart. Okay, In the, in the journey, I go over tons of scriptures about this. Because there's all kinds of stuff in scripture that says that um, the things that have been sanctified, altars, um, people, places have been sanctified. Well, places can't grow in holiness. So we really are not using the term properly like most of the time the church uses it. But we're not totally using it improperly. Okay, There's even scripture that Jesus, that God says that he is sanctified. Well, God can't draw closer to himself. So it doesn't mean holiness. It means it's been set apart for something. You can sanctify your car. It doesn't mean it's holy. It means it's been set apart for something. Right? Um, <clears throat> so do you understand what I'm saying? Sanctified just means being set apart. The, the moment it becomes holiness or it drops into the subject of holiness is when you say to the Lord, Jesus says, I have set you apart for me. And you say to him, I respond by setting myself apart for you. The same way that when, when a, a man proposes to a woman, she says yes. Okay? So now the subject becomes 
What are you going to do about this relationship that you have now entered into with Jesus Christ? We use a term salvation. It's a very small term. It's a very uh, quickly used term in today's Christian society. But it's not a healthy term in today's concept. It means the right thing, but we have so cheapened it by just meaning I prayed a prayer or I shook the hand of the pastor, now I'm saved. But that's not what Jesus says. That's not how Jesus talks about this. Jesus says we have been set apart He sets us apart. First, he sets himself apart for us, and then he sets us apart for him. Now we have to respond, and we respond by setting ourselves apart. Now the relationship begins, and that's where holiness comes in. Now, because I've set myself apart for him, I am pursuing him as my future bride. That means to the the, um, neglect of many other potential uh, soul attachments, okay? When Satan comes along and tries to entice me to leave my my Savior, my betrothed that I've set myself apart to, I say, no, that's where holiness comes in. When sin entices me, no, I belong to Jesus. Not I'm just a Christian and I don't do those things. I've I've said this before. Years ago, when I was a teenager, my, my mom told me one time, I wanted to go to the school dance. And she said, you can't go to the school dance. I said, why not? She said, because we're assemblies of God. Well, what kind of answer is that? Because I'm assemblies of God? I can't go to the dance? And she said, the assemblies of God, we do not dance. Well, I danced all over the place. I danced in the living room. I danced down the driveway. I danced. At, when I was a teenager, I was a dancing machine. <clears throat> and, and she didn't care. She didn't care. She thought it was funny. She... She would ask me all the time, hey, moonwalk, because I was good at moonwalking. And um, she, nope. By the way, I can break dance pretty good too. Just telling you. But so, so my mom watched me dance all the time and I said, well, then why can't I go to the school and dance? Now, I understand now why. There's actually a reason. I don't know if she ever understood that, but I know why I didn't let my children go to school dances. I had a specific reason why. It's a simple reason. I don't want my 14-year-old boy rubbing up against a 14-year-old girl. That's a simple one. Bad things happen, right? And so, but, but the answer is not because that's not what we do as Christians. No, the reason is because my heart belongs to Jesus. He is my future groom. I am his future bride, and I'm not going to sin because I don't want to do anything that would hurt that relationship. I don't want to do anything. That's holiness. That's where sanctification moves into, grabs onto holiness, and pulls it into the subject. When I set myself apart for the Lord, there are things I'm going to say no to. When When I asked Linda to marry me, she said yes. The seven or eighth time, it took me a while, but no, that's not true. Um, <clears throat> in fact, she was begging me. Like, yeah. That's also not true. So, <clears throat> but when I asked Linda to marry me, she said, yes, I moved to the other side of Texas to be a youth pastor. Um, when, I, when I wanted, when I, we called every single night, I talked on the phone. I wanted to talk to her every single night. If I would have called one time and somebody would have said, oh, I'm sorry, she's out with uh, so-and-so, this guy. That's not okay. <laughs> then you set yourself apart from me. We're not married yet, but you've sanctified yourself to me, and I've sanctified myself to you. 
And we do the same thing with Jesus. We say, Jesus, I now belong to you. But then, and this is the language all through Scripture, but then we prostitute ourselves to whatever comes along, which means what? You have not really set yourself apart for him. And that's the concept of holiness. I'm going to do the things that please Jesus the best that I can. And I'm not going to do the stuff that doesn't please Jesus. Because why? I belong to him. At some point, I'm giving up some of my rights because I belong to him. Really, I think you're giving up all of your rights. Yeah. Al? Right. So uh, when, when you accepted his betrothal, he put his ring on you. We have nothing to give him except right. our hearts. <clears throat> and the ring that he put on us is the Holy Spirit. That's his mark on us, as it were, to keep us until the day he comes back for us. And in the Jewish tradition of betrothal and, and marriage, the, uh, the bridegroom, not the bridegroom, I'm sorry, the betrothed, the woman sets herself apart literally physically. She'll actually go into another room apart from her family and, and discontinue relationships with all of the other people that she knew so that she could not spoil herself for her betrothed. In our, in our culture, you might think of it as a woman who puts on special makeup and makes her, you know, does her hair special for the guy that she wants to impress. And we do that in the sense of what we're called to do is to do that so that we eliminate everything from us that we know is not pleasing so that we make ourselves more beautiful and more attractive to him. And, and we all get this intuitively. Um, when you're engaged, if, if you're, if you're um, who you're engaged to is always hanging out with um, somebody of the opposite sex, the biker, always hanging yeah. out with somebody else, you're, it, there's a, it's intuitively within all of us. You don't like that. You don't like that. And I've had people say, well, that's just, that's just their insecurity. No, no, we're built this way. We're built this way. Um, there should be some levels of, of, um, of jealousy that comes along in our life. Right? I, I, we, should, we should want our spouse, or our, our, who we're engaged to, and then our spouse, we should want them to only desire us. And obviously vice versa. And when that's not the case, there's problems. It's the same way with Jesus. He wants us to want him and only him. I talk about this a lot. That the Ten Commandments, we always look at them as a list of rules. But it starts out with, I am a jealous God. And I don't want you to want anybody but me. He says that. That's how the Ten Commandments start. It's not a list of rules. It's you belong to me, and I'm going to give you everything. But here's how you belong to me. Don't do these things because they're going to hurt you and I. Right? They're built in. I saw somebody back there had their hand raised. Somebody? Cynthia? My first question is for Linda, if he's really good at, at dancing or not. <laughs> I'm just kidding. At what? We need to, I need to hear that. The dancing, break dancing. I am. You, I don't care if you I, believe I'm me. Just, you know. I don't care if you guys believe me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a dancing machine. Okay. Don't confuse that with a dancing queen. That's a line in a song. So my question is, because as you're talking about this, you know, the, the Hebrew word is kadosh, which means to be set apart. So I understand kind of what you're talking about there as far as the set apart. And I know kind of some of the scriptures where it's actually using the, 
it, the original context was the word kadosh, but can you give me an example of where <coughs> you're talking about the word sanctification, where that comes in in, in the context of Scripture? Um, besides Jeremiah? Well, Jeremiah is actually the word kadosh in Hebrew when it says, I set you apart, which means, I mean, it goes back to that Hebrew word, which kadosh actually means set apart. So I'm trying to differentiate between the setting apart and then this other half that goes into the sanctification part that you're talking about, where it's like then it's a response back. Or the, to me, like the word holy, a lot of many times in scripture goes back to that word kadosh. Yes. And so that means <coughs> set apart. And in, the, in my version, it actually says the word set apart, which is kadosh as well. But so I'm looking for the, the other component to this when you're talk, differentiating between the two, an example of that. So, so interestingly, we don't ever see um, the word uh, sanctified used to, to only mean holiness, to only mean the concept of growing in holiness. Like you're saying, holiness can be used to mean set apart, but we don't see the word sanctified set apart. We don't ever see that to actually mean holiness. We see where the Lord says, like Peter says, be holy for I am holy. That's not the same word. It doesn't, it doesn't mean just set apart. There's actually a, um, the spiritual connotation that we're going to try to be like the Lord. Okay? So, so the idea that... The, but again, being like the Lord, isn't that being set apart? Because you're set apart from the world. You're no longer part of the world. Yes. That, that's what I'm trying to actually prove is... That when we, when I, I think the church, and I give some definitions when I'm going over this, when I do this in the journey, but we almost, all, almost always mean, uh, when we use the word sanctified or sanctification, we always, the definition is the process of growing in practical holiness. But that is, that is not the process. That's, that is a wrong definition in my opinion. I think it's the, the, it's the result of sanctification. It's not the process. The process of growing in holiness is what we do because we have chosen to be set apart. Because we choose back to be set apart, then the result becomes holiness. For, for example, I'm, I don't, when, when, when um, Lynn and I got engaged, I didn't, I, didn't, um, I didn't have a new goal in life to be uh, true to her. That wasn't my... That wasn't now my endeavor. Now that I'm engaged, I, my desire is to be true to Linda. Right? Okay. Because why? If, if my goal was now to be true to Linda, to me there's something missing there. Shouldn't that be a result of my heart for her? Shouldn't that be the, the outcome? The result is I, I will be true to her. Why? Because she's... My everything. She's my, my. You know, we say she's my other half or whatever. This was another reporter asked me. Uh, this was actually an in-house comms thing we were doing today, and they asked me about uh, my family, and I told them. I said, "This is the thing with me is I feel like that that uh, my wife and I have known each other since before I was born. I don't know what it feels like to not know her now, to not be part." her part of me and me part of her. I don't understand. It's hard for me to look back as a kid and, and see myself as a kid without, like, Linda being there, right? In my, in my head, my spirit, I'm like, she know, she was there. She just wasn't there, right? So, 
So the, the concept for me is I don't, I don't wake up every morning saying, I hope I don't cheat on Linda today. My, my relationship with her is that I want to be closer to her every day. I want to be a better husband. I want to, I wanna, t- 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 to some extent, I want to treat her right and all this other stuff. So, I mean, you have to, it has to be balanced out with who I am and all this kind of stuff. But, but, but because of that, and I'll use the term holiness, because of that, holiness happens. It's not the process. Sanctification is not the process. It's the result. I mean, holiness is the result. Sanctification is not the process of growing in holiness. It's the process of growing toward the Lord, and because of that, holiness should be happening. And this is, this is a major thing I think is wrong with the church right now, is the church has no concept of holiness because we have no concept of a true submission and surrender to a holy king. If you truly surrender and submit to a holy king, you will act like it. Your life will look like it. Things are going to be different because I, I'm trying to serve the king, and he's watching me. He, every second he's watching me. And yes, he loves me. He's full of grace and everything else, but I can disappoint the Lord. I said that one time, and I had some people get so upset at me in a church. You can't disappoint Jesus. Yes, the whole Bible is disappointing God. Almost every story is God being disappointed and angry. Do you think you're just in a different group? As people, that's what we're best at is disappointing God. But that's where his mercy comes in, right? And then his grace uh, follows that up too. And so the, the sanctification process, it, it's always, always through Scripture. It has to do with, with setting apart, something being set apart. It's not actually used for holiness. Holiness will revert back to it, but it's not actually used. Is, am I any, anywhere close to answering your question? Yes. Okay. And so when people say, well, sanctification is, is growing in holiness, yeah, sort of, right? Right, you understand. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Is that one? Okay. I, I don't know exactly how I'm trying to ask this, but um, just going back to, like, the whole concept of marriage and in the beginning that... God created Adam and then Eve to be his helper. So she wasn't created, yeah, his helpmate. So was she not necessarily created to be his wife per se? Because in my mind, you know, I can't grasp being in heaven and not being married to Daniel. Um, (laughs) Yeah, congratulations. Um, But, you know, like not, like in my humanness, I can't grasp that. Like he, he's my, like you said, he's my other half. And we're one. And so in heaven being married to Jesus, so then going back to Adam and Eve, was Eve not Adam's wife? I don't know if you... Yeah, there's, so there's some great language that tells us a bunch there, right? So, so when... Um, so God creates Eve from Adam's rib. I mean, you guys, I've talked about this. You've heard this. Um, he didn't use a foot bone. He's, Adam's not supposed to walk on her. He didn't use a, a bone out of his head. She's not supposed to rule over him. He used a bone of a rib. And which, by the way, this is, this is part of my marriage series. And, and you guys listen to it, so you know this part. But 
Uh, if you've ever been through my premarital counseling, this is part of it. But he used a rib cage, which protects your heart, which protects the sensitive parts of your existence, you know, the vital stuff. And, um, and specifically the heart, which God uses that terminology. Uh, I, don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's coincidence. I think that we always say so they can walk side by side. That's why I used a rib. But I don't think that's really the bigger picture. I think the bigger picture is because that's the part that covers uh, Adam's heart. And God pulls that specifically and says this is where she's going to come from is the part that was right next to and covering and protecting your heart. I, I, that's more than just imagery to me. That's, that's um, vitally important in the process. Okay? But the, the concept of where they married, this, this is actually answered very easily in the next few sentences. Because th- this is when God says, now, we always take this statement and we go, oh, yeah. And then it's quoted in the New Testament. Oh, yeah. But, but we don't actually process what he's saying and when he's saying it. Okay? Then he says, this is uh, why a man leaves his mother and his father and uh, clings to um, his wife, right? There's a problem with the timing of that statement. There had never been a mother and a father. So for God to say that to Adam and Eve, they're like, okay, what's a mother? I mean, seriously, it reminds me of the statement I heard in VeggieTales one time. My son, my son said he was like four years old. And he said this, and I thought, that is the funniest thing. And then I saw it on VeggieTales a week later, so I realized he didn't come up with it. He was quoting it. But they were back in Bible times, and one of them says, I'm so hungry I could eat a spaceship. And, uh, and one of the other ones say, what's a spaceship? I don't know. And that, that it just went on, you know. And, but I thought that was hilarious at the time. Um, but, and obviously you guys just did too. So, um, but here's the thing with that, is that's a very anachronistic statement. It doesn't belong there unless God is trying to establish something. It's out of time and place. It doesn't exist. God is referencing something there is no reference for. What he is establishing is marriage. That's why he says it. This is what marriage is built upon. You leave your mother and your father and you join to each other. And now you two are the one. This is an important thing when it comes to to marriage and family. And this is not being understood in today's society at all. We have we left this so far behind, it doesn't even make rational sense in our context today. Is that God has called spouses to cleave to each other, to stay together, and to be committed to each other. God expects the children to leave. I don't I don't just mean the house, in case my daughter is somewhere around here. He's saying the children will leave and they will become one with someone else. The children were never expected to be one with the parents. The parents are one, they have offspring, and then they find somebody and they become one. Okay, that's what, that's this, this whole language that we see. And we see it in Ephesians 5, then again too, where God is quoting this. But that is a statement of marriage. That's why he says this. Now, when you get to eternity... I've explained this in a bunch of different ways over the years. I'll, I'll quickly explain this. Because Lynn and I had the same conversation after a year or two of marriage. We were talking about going to heaven. And she literally said, I don't know if I want to go to heaven if I can't be married to you. I'm like, I get it. I get it. You don't feel that way anymore? You're good for? Feel that? I'm ready for just heaven. I just, even if you're not there. <laughs> 
But here's the thing, is being married to Jesus Christ eclipses so much. You'll still be known, you'll still know, um, you'll still know each other as being married. Um, Daniel will, you'll still know Daniel as your husband, uh, but it'll be different. Those things will be so far, they'll be so small in comparison to actually married to the king of the universe that you two together married to him now becomes the amazingness of your relationship is the connection that you get to the king now. Um, I don't understand that totally because I haven't ever been anywhere but earth, right? And so it's hard to totally understand that. I have to accept that part by faith. But when you read a little bit of some of the, the details of heaven and, and um, new heavens and new earth and relationship and Jesus is the light, and all, when you read some of the stuff, you kind of start getting it in your spirit. That it's going to be pretty amazing. And we're going to be married to the king. To the king of everything. Um, yeah, the uh, I think another great picture there is in, in Genesis 2, 18, 19, 20, when in verse 18, God says, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a companion for Adam. So in order to do that, he then assigns Adam the job of naming every single animal on earth. And, uh, and Adam doesn't realize until he finishes naming all the animals, hey, there's, there's nobody here for me. Nobody like him. And nobody was like me. And so the, um, you see that, there, that God, God taught Adam through this hard work of naming all the animals. That, so he had such a relationship with God in the garden, that's what I was getting at, such a relationship with God. He wasn't worried about having a wife or companion, and God had to actually teach him and give him the understanding of that need. He didn't know he needed it. Yeah, he didn't understand it. Um, one last thing. So this is one of the things I do in the marriage series. The fact that God took the rib, this is, this is the concept of what I think intimacy is, or the biblical concept of intimacy, is God took the protectiveness around Adam's heart, and he creates Eve. And I think Eve, this is also why communication, all these things are so important in relationship and this will make sense. I think Eve spends the rest of her life trying to get back in there and protect that. And the, the, using the word intimacy, into me, see. My wife has the ability to do that that no one else does. She can look right into my soul. And it's because that's where she came from. I, I know it's a little bit, of, little bit of visual metaphor there, but that's where she came from is my heart, my, my protection of my heart. And so she spends her time trying to get back in there. Now, the, the sin thing that happens with all of humanity means there's a resistance from me to that. Because for her to get all the way back in there demands communication, demands openness, demands true intimacy, all that kind of stuff. And the sin nature of male resists and rejects that. It's not the way God designed male. It's the sin part that, that messes with that, clouds that, corrodes that, causes the problem there. And so that's where the intimacy issues come from and all that kind of stuff. And then the other side is the fact that Adam was designed to cover and protect. As she's, as she's getting back in there, to cover and protect her, and that's also where issues come up in marriage, is um, whether she wants that, desires that, and whether he's doing that. Well, the number one issue that I've seen in marriages over the years, number one issue is she wants him to stand up and be a man, and he won't do it. 
That's the number one thing. It's not her ruling over him or whatever. I know, I know the biblical concept of that. But it's if he'll just be a man. Most, almost all the time, she's just wanting him to just be the man. Lead. Lead spiritually. Lead. And most of the time, uh, guys don't do that. And there's a problem. So we're late, guys. It's, we got to go. All right. So we got through like four verses. Man, we were on fire. So... <clears throat> Um, let's pray. God, we thank you so much. We thank you for you, and we thank you for loving us. And uh, Jesus, I, I respond wholeheartedly to you. I, I want to belong to you. I want to be yours. I commit myself to you. That, um, that I want to be ready. I want my, my lamp ready. When you come back, full of oil, wick trimmed, I want to be ready and waiting when you come back. Because all I've been looking toward is you. Lord, I pray that across our church. I pray that across everybody in our Sunday services and the kids and the youth. And Lord, I pray it across the whole city that, that we would truly desire to be that, that bride-to-be that is just waiting for you to come back. And our hearts are after you. Our, our passion is after you. And we just need you above everything. And Lord, I believe if we, if we get that, if we get to that place, that, that, you will, that you will unfold stuff into our life that amazes us, catches us by surprise, just supernatural stuff. And so, Lord, we just chase after you for no reason other than just to chase after you. And we thank you for including us in this whole thing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, that's it. Men's ministry needs help stacking chairs. If you can stay and help and get this center chair stacked. <laughs>